0: Hi, folks, way this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough even if they don't. Today is December 4th, 2014. It's Thursday, and I got a good one for you today. I got Kenton Zurbin hanging on the line. I'll have him on in just a moment. We're going to talk about permaculture and how it is a solution to many of our problems, a new PRI that he is a teacher at, and of all places, Barbados, and uh, some other really cool stuff. This was a really, really uh, deep conversation. Uh, that I think will be very beneficial to many people, even folks that are not of the permaculture bend, because we're not going to be talking about so much like what trees to plant today, but the type of design science that is permaculture and how it applies to many things in life, not just growing food. Anyway, with that, before I bring Kenton on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today jmbullion.com I'll tell you what I believe that silver and gold should be part of your investment portfolio. I don't think you should get rid of all your money and convert it 100% to silver and gold. I think it's stupid talk, but I think 5 to 10% of your net worth put into uh, hard assets like silver and gold is a good hedge against catastrophic inflation and other economic uncertainties. When I need to add silver and gold to my portfolio, and I want to do so with physical metal, I go to JM Bullion, and I think you should too, because I can talk to the president, Michael, there if there's a problem and make sure that it's taken care of for you, which I've done for people when things have occasionally popped up, because they have better pricing than Monix and Atmex, and I can't talk to their president. That says it all to me. JM Bullion, great pricing, exceptional service, and small enough that there's an attention and a care to a market like the TSP market. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. Remember, they do offer discounts for members of the support brigade. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources, all the resources you need ready made and ready to go on their website, point, click, and buy. Great pricing, great service, Ready-Made Resources, the company that is what it is, says what it does, and does what it says. They've got something cool available right now, too, by the way. I want to let you know about it. i got an email from Robert over there yesterday, and here's what it is. What they have right now is an upgraded PVS-14 Gen 3, auto graded with an auto graded free weapons mount, uh, and a box of infrared chemical lights, and 30 free mountain house pouches, all included with the uh, the PVS-14. The PVS-14, for those that don't know, is one of the most advanced night vision monoculars available. Uh, the mount is a significant upgrade. Uh, right now they have all of that available for 29 45 That's 2945 That's not $29.45. So this is a very high-end, mil-spec level um, piece of uh, of a night vision gear. It's not for everybody, but if you're in the market for one, this is a hell of a deal. I'll put a link to not just ready-made resources today, uh, but to this night vision system as well. Um, Those of you that are concerned with owning the night, man... This is a way to do it. And uh, remember, readymaderesources.com, they have everything from the practical to the tactical. This one happens to be the tactical. Check them out today. And again, I'll have a link to both their main site and to this uh, awesome night vision system in today's show notes. It's something you might want to look at, even if it's not something you personally want to buy, just to get an idea of how cool some of the stuff these guys have really is. Next up, we have our history segment, and Alex has got quite a few of them laid out in advance because he had to take off uh, to deal with some personal issues. And uh, so we've got one today, but it's a good one, and it's the Mount Pinatubo of Iceland uh, then and right now. Um, So this is 1477. Bardur Bunga volcano in Iceland goes up like Mount Pinatubo. This eruption is rated a 6 out of 7 on the Volcanic Explosivity Index. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it's not good. I'll put it to you that way. In other words, it's not the apocalypse, but if you were anywhere near it, you certainly thought the end was near right before the end came for you. It is putting out an amazing amount of ash and lava. Pyroclastic flows are a wavefront of superheated gas and rock traveling for miles at super speed, destroying everything in its path. Although lava in Iceland is more or less like lava in Hawaii, the Barðarbunga volcano has been very explosive in the past over its life. It has had put out more lava than any other volcano, I guess, that we know of anyway. My take by Alex Shrug, just so you know, the Barbunga volcano became active again in August 2014. The current eruption has put out the second most amount of lava in Iceland since the 18th century. Could it explode? Yes, it could. Will it explode? Iceland is under an alert, but even the volcanic experts cannot predict such things very far in advance, and in some cases, they cannot predict the time of volcanic explosion at all. Uh, the way I think about this the way or what it makes me think of is things like the Yellowstone supervolcano. If there is to be something that 's like an earth ending apocalypse, if there is something to do that. It is the, the most likely suspect would not be an economic collapse. Economies collapse, they get rebuilt. Okay. Um, it's probably not that we're going to nuke each other. We're probably smart enough not to do that. It's probably not a CME from the sun. It might screw up the grid, but it won't probably do it to the level that everybody thinks that seems to think that it will. It's not North Korea launching a nuclear missile over top of us and, and creating, you know, an EMP. It's probably a super volcanic event the results for the planet would be absolutely catastrophic. I don't sit around planning for it because, well, you have to plan based on the most probable things that are going to be in your life, but it is one of those things that makes you realize how fragile humanity is and how little we are and how easy it really would be for us to be wiped from the face of the planet's existence if uh, something like that ever occurred. There's a a, a show called When Yellowstone Erupts, And it shows a massive Yellowstone eruption, but not to the level of what could happen. It's got some theatrical license and things like that. It was either put out on Learning Channel or Discovery Channel or something like that. But it is interesting to watch. And uh, there is no doubt that one of the most powerful forces on planet Earth is volcanic force. So it's something to always keep an eye on. And even something like, well, that's in Iceland. Uh, we had eruptions in Iceland recently that shut down air traffic over Europe uh, just due to, to the, the, the ash. The ash gets into airplane engines and destroys them. It's, it's extremely, extremely diverse in its ability to cause problems throughout the world, volcanic energy. There's a volcano in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Africa. I can't remember the name of it now. But it is one of those things that science looks at and goes, sooner or later, this thing's going to blow in a certain way. And when it does, half the mountain's going to come down. And that half of the mountain, when it comes down, is going to land in the Atlantic Ocean. So what do we care? Uh, The tsunami that will end up hitting our east coast, when that happens, will be a disaster at a level that you can't even get your head around. And am I saying it's going to happen tomorrow? No. Am I saying it's going to happen in our lifetime? No. Am I saying it's going to happen within a thousand years? No. What I am saying is based on all the geological evidence there, sooner or later, it's going to come down. And it could come down tomorrow just as, as likely as it could come down 200 years from now. We just don't know. Uh, there are things in this world we don't know. And all we can do is the best we can with what we have, with the best planning, we plan for the worst and hope for the best. That's my take from the history segment today. Uh, before we move on, please do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you help support my show at 18.3 cents an episode. That's how the math works out. To learn more, just go to the Survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. You get a bunch of free content, including the new video series that I'm doing for MSB members only. Believe it or not, I got an email. a hate email from somebody yesterday. I just like to share this before I bring Kitten on. This was great. I got a hate email. It had to be like eight paragraphs long, and these were big, like jumbled paragraphs that are hard to read, like full screen with paragraphs about how wrong I am. Believe it or not, how wrong I am because I dare to put out video content that's only for the MSB. I, I really don't know what it said because once I got to a certain point of realizing that w- what the point was, I just deleted it. But yesterday I was talking about the straw that, that, that breaks the camel's back sometimes, or sometimes or maybe I'm a little bit too tough on a comment or something. It's that type of avalanche nonsense that comes in all the time. So if I'm ever short with you, Please understand, there may have been 50 of those things before your one little thing, and I apologize in advance if I'm ever too short with anybody who is just trying to help or just pointing something out. Another little bit of troubleshooting. Some of you guys told me yesterday you couldn't download the show um, and were falling back on using the player on the site and things like that. There was some weird glitch in the feed, and I went and rebuilt the feed in FeedBurner, and it seemed to fix things for most people, but some podcatchers or something may still be having an issue. Um, all I can tell you is it works in iTunes, it works in Stitcher Radio, it works in the uh, – it's not only really iTunes, it's the podcast app on the iPhone because they broke the podcast out of iTunes to its own app. works there, works in Stitcher, works on the Android app that Jason X works built for the show. So I, there's nothing I can do at this point. Uh, there was some kind of bug in the feed being generated that like mislocated the audio file or something beyond my technical understanding and I went into Feed burner and simply did a nuclear resync they call it where basically you blow it up and rebuild it from scratch and that fixed the bug but it, there could be some devices out there that are still stuck on that so uh, resetting them or upgrading their software or whatever might be the, the the solution to that. Jason put out a bug fix for the Android app like four hours after it happened. So he's a pretty awesome guy. Uh, again, if you're an Android user, we do have an Android app. You can get a link to it at thesurvivalpodcast.com. With that, let us bring on our special guest today, Kenton Zurbin of the PRI of Barbados. Not a bad place to be. Hey, Kenton, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me today.
0: Hey, we have you on to talk about permaculture and community funding and crowdfunding, basically. Um, but before we do that, you know, you're, you're, you're big into permaculture. And I find that my listeners tend to connect with guests better if they understand how they got where they are, so to speak, in life. And most of us take this kind of wonky path to whatever we end up doing with our lives. And there's probably not, you know, especially right now, a lot of people in permaculture that when they were eight were like, I'm going to grow up, I'm going to be like a permaculturist, right? So so how did you end up in Barbados uh, doing permaculture? Okay, what's the background that led you there?
1: Well, as you say, it
0: is a, one of those crazy
1: wonky stories that kind of goes all over the place. So I started my career as a teacher. I, uh, like a lot of teachers, you know, wanted to make a difference, got into it for these good feelings, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to raise the next generation. Um, but somewhere along the way, I started to really question the education system. I started to ask myself, are we really preparing youth for the future of tomorrow? And I didn't really have a good answer. I I got kind of depressed about it and just at that right time in my life, um, I took a permaculture design course in Alberta, Canada, with with a man named Rob Avis with Verge Permaculture. Um, And that was a life-changing moment for certain. I ended up going and taking the permaculture design course and still as a teacher within the high school system, um, I took permaculture to the high school and started doing a permaculture club and I found the kids just ate it up but I still wasn't really doing permaculture full time, I was just doing this little club on the lunch hours every now and then so when my contract finished, I decided, okay, let's take this seriously, if this is where I want to go, let's go to Australia Um, and I got a year-long work visa and I went to Australia for a year um, I planned the whole trip around going to various permaculture properties and visiting permaculture teachers and doing um, a permaculture internship with Jeff Lawton um, at his farm, Zaytuna Farm. Um, and that was all very, very, very empowering. And I got so many experiences out of it, such as uh, being an assistant on a, a course in Melbourne with Bill Mollison and Jeff, um, doing some educational consultancy for Jeff himself when he was getting ready for his uh, big launch of all of his video uh, series. I was actually helping him a little bit behind the scenes, providing some suggestions um, and educate, uh, organizing his educational materials. He had just a huge slew, like over 50 gigabytes of of books and documents and short clip videos and references and it wasn't that organized at that time and I went I know I'm gonna help you organize all this and then we have all this ready to go for for referencing one for myself for my teachers notes but also for Jeff uh, for continuing his rollout of his videos so it was a it was a truly a huge stepping stone in my career going there getting not only the internship for 10 weeks and getting more confidence as a teacher in the material But then having these experiences with Jeff after the point, so go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. No, so that was um that was the first you know next phase of 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 my journey was that year in Australia. Now the thing was is I also did a job or two while I was down there and got proficient in designing in the in the subtropics, but going back home to Canada. I went, holy crap, this is not the same climate, so certainly a lot of things remain the same in terms of the principles and some of the techniques, but the specifics change, and uh, how you work with, you know, harmonizing with water and sun and wind, those also change, so it obviously affects our structures, affects our growing systems, so I decided, you know what, let's do it all over again, let's go across Canada for a year, Um, and I, by the way, when I did both these trips, I used... um, the couchsurfing network and the woofing network and, okay and for the uh listeners who don't know what woofing is uh it stands for willing workers on organic farms um and basically these farms they want to have people to come in and help them run their systems and they often want to have to teach they want to pass on a certain skill set or knowledge base that's being lost you know whether it's canning or fermenting or raising organic food or you know sustainable building techniques it's amazing how many little spots there are on the world map of people who are willing to have people come to their farm for two to three weeks or more, and in exchange for your labor, they give you food, room, um, and they teach you. So I traveled for two years of my life just enriching myself with permaculture experiences and jobs and teaching opportunities, and I did it for a couple thousand dollars a year. Wow. So, of course,
0: there is the other side. It's also that you had to, to put your life into that mode and, you know, not earn probably a hell of a lot more money doing a regular job or teaching or what have you. So there was a certain commitment required to get where you did.
1: Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that's what kind of led me into this opportunity to come to Barbados is while I was going across Canada, I happened to visit my first teacher and, He had been um, approached by um, Lorraine Chirallo, is her name, and she she had done the internship with Jeff Lautner as well, and was looking for a place to apply her skill set as a manager and business-minded person uh, with now a new permaculture skill set. She wanted to start up a brand new permaculture research institute in Barbados. Now, Mm. the thing, though, with these permaculture research institutes is you have to have an accredited PRI teacher. So um, my my colleague and uh, mentor, uh, Rob Avis, who first taught me permaculture, said, you know, I'm not in the right space for this right now. This is a great opportunity, though, and you seem like you are. So he passed on the contact information. I had an interview with uh, Lorraine, and we started planning from there. And we wrote a grant with the United Nations, and it was awarded $50,000. And about five months ago now, uh, we flew down to Barbados to start a brand-new permaculture research institute.
0: Wow. So let's let's back up a bit then. Um, a lot of the audience really is familiar with permaculture. Um, a lot of them aren't. There's new people coming on to listen to the show every day. Um, it's actually been a while since I've done a show deep in the permaculture principles. And I also find that every single permaculturist you ask the question I'm about to ask you will answer it slightly differently, and I'm always interested to hear this because I get the question all the time, and I try to tailor the answer to the the, the person asking the question. Mm -hmm. So if somebody asks you, what is permaculture, how do you answer that question?
1: Well, I usually start by telling them it's a design science that's inspired by nature and guided by ethics to meet the needs of humanity to the benefit of the environment. Now, when people go, okay, that that sounds really impressive. What does it really mean? Well, when you say, like, inspired by nature, you know, why reinvent the wheel for how to grow food? When you look at a forest, you know, no one's watering that. No one's fertilizing that. No one's going in there and managing that. It doesn't produce as much food as we'd like, although hunter-gatherers may (laughs) disagree. Um, But we can take that very efficient system and use biomimicry look at how it operates in terms of its connections and its layers and its root systems and how it interacts with soil, and we can take that and, and switch out some of the species for food-producing species. And this is how we move to something like a food forest, which people get so excited about in permaculture, is how do you make a, a Willy Wonka factory of fruit and veg that maintains itself? Mm. Um, so when I say inspired by nature, that's what we're getting, you know, going behind here. We're trying to mimic nature's systems and learn a little bit from her, because as a designer, she's got more time as a designer on the job than anyone else, and she's got more experience, and she hasn't failed yet. So I really think there's a lot to learn there, um, and that's probably the real, the true heart of permaculture. Um, when we start thinking about it in terms of people, then, we have to come into that ethical side that I said. So when you say guided by ethics, we got to go, okay, what are the ethics of permaculture? What defines it, and what when, you, when you're trying to separate what is permaculture from what's not, it often comes down to these ethics. And you've got to go, okay, number one ethic, does it care for the earth? And you look at soil as a good example of this. And if you're not building topsoil, then you're depleting it. And that's not sustainable. Yeah. A- and most people don't wrap their heads around this. They only think of the surplus that comes off the field without thinking that the ultimate resource is the soil in which it comes from. So uh, we really got to look at these systems and go, okay, inspired by ethics means first we got to look after the earth because it looks after us. Only then can we really look after people. If we're not looking after the earth, we're not looking after the people because long term, it's just not a long term solution. So the second ethic is then look after people. And the third ethic is future care or fair share, as some people say. Um, and that's making, you know, a return of the surplus is we can, we can take all these yields off the land and look, say, hey, we're doing all right. But um, there's a lot often bigger to the picture there and making sure that we're giving back all the time to the system so they can evolve and give back to those less need or give back to animals, give back to the larger system. We need to return our, our yields beyond what we actually need.
0: Yeah, you can tell you're a lot in student because there's no attempt to rewrite the third ethic to a redistribution model, which actually is counter to the entire design science that's there, that if we're not reinvesting back into the land, back into the very systems that created the surplus in the first place, mm. they cannot be sustainable. Exactly. exactly. It's impossible. to. In fact, the extraction model, the redistribution model, is the problem.
1: Yes, exactly. I heard a really good – I read about it once on um, the Permaculture Forums. There was a really good forum there about soil as a financial institution. And, and thinking about soil as a bank account and really we're living off the interest. If we're taking away soils or degrading our systems, it's like taking out from your capital and then you're, eventually your bank account is going to just deplete. So how do we, How do we exactly as you said, re- keep reinvesting back into that system so we're growing our capital and we have more interest to go off of and then put reinvest back in again. It's, it's really like life savings. <laughs>
0: Well, and it is. It's quantifiable, too. So, like, let's lead it this way. Let's say that there were two five-acre squares of land. They were about the same size. They were in the same basic climate. They had the same basic access to road and services and things like that. And let's say you had plenty of money. You could afford to buy either one of them. And one of them had a foot of deep black loamy topsoil. And the other was this sparse, lime-based, alkaline, eroded... Just nasty landscape. Now, as a permaculturist, we can transform that one. I, you know, Unfortunately, that's what I have to do here on my property here. But if money's if money is there and you can start with a foot of deep topsoil, would you not pay more for it? Yes. And and, and doesn't the market pay more for it?
1: They often actually don't. I feel like they don't value that enough. I think that's where, you know, in terms of doing a permaculture design course, the 72-hour course, for those who don't know, is very valuable for people who want to buy land because they can yeah. analyze these resources which aren't typically you know, uh, valued as much as they should be. So it really sets people up in terms of building their own dream property, in terms of going and buying that plot of land, knowing which is that one of two, that's the mm-hmm. better. Um, yeah, totally. In terms of like, even I'm talking
0: of, like, about agricultural land though. If you're selling farmland, farmland that's deep deep topsoil sells for more than than farmland that you can't grow anything in. Yeah,
1: yes.
0: I mean, there's a quantifiable metric there mm-hmm. that when you look at farmland in Iowa, it, it it sells for more than farmland in a place that's that's, that's that has to be used as rangeland. You you can't even do modern agricultural practices. Not that you or I want to, but mm-hmm. when we, when it comes to building topsoil, it does build value.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Financially measurable, I guess, is what I I was trying to get out there. But um, on that note, I mean, we look at the actions of human beings and there's people that just say, well, basically, the human race Mm -hmm. is a virus. Right. So, like, remember the movie The Matrix where they said humans are what you are. You're a disease. You're a virus. Do you think humans are behaving like a disease, can we actually be regenerative as a species? I mean, I know you can or I can or people can make that individual choice, but do you think that that humankind as itself can become regenerative as as a on mass?
1: I do. I have a lot of hope. I have actually a lot of hope and I think we have more access to resources and knowledge than ever before in history. So if not now when and if not who us. Um I actually have th- studied this this, this side of, of looking at human species, you know, and their relationships. And there's there's three types of main relationships. You have mutualism, commensalism, and parasitism. Now, in mutualism, you're both are okay. Neither's really getting negative. You're, you're both kind of all right, getting a benefit. Or commensalism, where you're you're one of them's getting a benefit, the other one doesn't really care. But it, it's in the third parasitism that we would associate a virus such as what we go through mm. our body where one is deteriorating or having a negative effect and the other one's getting a positive and when we look at the whole world as an organism and go okay now are we as as little tiny people on this this larger organism what category do we put ourselves of those three categories and I can't say I can I haven't found many people at all actually regardless of their political view or their education um, who would actually agree with me that that the humans are, are a benefit to their larger environment right now? So it's kind of one of those moments where people really have to consider, okay, which one do we want to classify ourselves in? And I would think that right now, on mass, we are a virus, but that doesn't mean we always have to be. And I think there's a there's a tipping point here, and a lot of permacultures get very excited about this, um, especially if we talk about it at the end of the course because. We often talk about the physical systems of landscape and home, and how do we connect all these systems of water and soil together, and things like that. But then, towards the end of the course, you start to have to apply this systems understanding to our human social systems, and it becomes a bit more abstract or hard to put your fingers on, so to say, because uh, there's not as, not as many not as many answers out there right now. But the exciting part is when you study things like a fad. There's a certain part of the population which has to accept that a fad is okay or that it's cool and then there's a trigger point where the rest of the population suddenly goes boom and overnight, you know, almost seems like everyone's playing pogs or everyone's into Pokemon (laughs) or everyone's got that latest fashion set. And that's the part where a permaculture gets really excited is where are we in this, you know, slow incline towards this tipping point where suddenly everyone will value, you know, land and soil and food again and growing food. Um, and want to switch out of that mentality of, of being a virus and look at it as such.
0: So I think a lot of it is people haven't yet understood that they can or that it's possible or how easy it really can be because you can't take hardly any human being. You, there's a few I'm sure you can find, but you take most people and take them into a system of, of abundance mm-hmm. and they see the beauty that's there mm. and they want a piece of it. Yes. But then they go back to their little hole that they've carved out for themselves, and they convince themselves that's something somebody else did, somebody else can do, and I can't do it. And there's people like you and me that are deep into the study of this stuff and deep into the practical application of this stuff, but anybody can sheet mulch a backyard, especially (laughs) in in a suburban or urban environment, and create a a backyard oasis – and I, and and build soil. I don't know if you saw one of Jeff's latest videos with the the, the couple up in uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they're pretty much sheet mulching and and that's and composting. And that's about it. And when they sent their soil sample to the soil research center, they called them and they were like, "This is the best soil we've ever seen in our lives." Yes. And Jeff just laughed and said, "Anybody can do this."
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. It's it's very applicable to everyday people. Like we all have food, and we all have we all need food, and we all have homes. So actually, I think that's in the, in the manual is one of the things that Bill Mollison calls the prime directive of permaculture is how do we get our food and homes in order so they shelter and feed us. And you can tell that you know, Jeff Lawton is a student of Bill's in that regard because he says some pretty crazy quotes like all the world's problems can be fixed in the garden. And when I actually first heard that quote, I went, uh, yeah, sure there, guy. <laughs> but after I did my internship with him, it was interesting having conversations with people and actually challenging, you know, going like, "Hey, let's talk about a problem. How does it relate to gardening and food again? Because, you know, maybe the, the relationship is one or two steps removed, but usually it all comes back, whether it's diet, whether it's political issues even, or whether it's, you know, it's so much has to do with, with food.
0: Well, definitely. And it's, it's, it has to do with meeting needs, right? So yes. if we take a society where the needs are basically met of people and you look at it, it's pretty well run and pretty orderly, and there's probably not a lot of people slit in other people's throats. And <laughs> there, there's psychopaths that, that harm and injure and, and do things like that because they have some twisted mental defect that they get pleasure from it. But in general, most people don't steal they don 't hurt other people they don 't infringe on other people as long as their needs are met
1: exactly
0: you take that same society and you just start to to pinch it and stress it and start to not to go to total you know like a natural disaster, but you just people start to lose jobs, inflation hits what have you, and they have, they're just a little bit stressed, and crime rates start to go up yeah, and then you do have a natural disaster, and what happens? you have looting, you have rioting, are some the people that are just waiting for an excuse, yeah but the the person that will not steal your bread will steal your bread the minute they think their their child will starve without it exactly right so if we can meet the basic needs of society food shelter water energy health sanitation and a basic sense of purpose then many of the what we call the problems of society go away and using the garden as the place for that to originate makes a lot of sense.
1: Most certainly. And like you were saying earlier, it can happen in any one space, whether it's a balcony on an apartment or whether it's a backyard that's small or whether you've got 15 acres, you know. Pick your size, you can still design an efficient system that builds soil, that uses its water efficiently and produces as much food as it can in that space.
0: Absolutely. So you also I, i've read some of your notes here and you say that the concept of self-sufficiency mm. which i just i just kind of hit on there honestly with those needs mm. those are a, a lot of the way that people develop self-sufficiency but you say that it's commonly misunderstood as a total concept self-sufficient the concept is wrong in most people's minds when they use the word. Mm-hmm. Or as one of my friends is fond of saying, I don't think that word means what you think it means <laughs> when you say it. <laughs> right? So what do, you, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, here's the thing. Is a lot of people identify with self-sufficiency. And I first off don't want to trigger any of them in terms of what they do or devaluing it. But the idea of self-sufficiency in terms of a lot of the people who aren't doing it Think it is? Is they think it's about you know getting your bomb shelter and getting a bunch of cans of beans in it and having your gun and preparing for that day in case you know the zombie apocalypse comes or a nuke goes off or something, you know it's it's a really rooted in 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 fear in a lot of people's minds this idea. How do I be completely self-sufficient so I don't need anyone else in case something happens? And that that whole being rooted in fear and scarcity. Is, is, is a place that closes down our minds to creativity and making these connections, which is really how all these systems thrive. You know, talking about that forest earlier, what makes it so efficient is its interconnectivity with all the other elements. Sure, the tree, some people would say, is self-sufficient. in terms of It builds nutrients around it. It doesn't need anyone else. But really, it needs the forest. It needs the soil in which it was built from other things. So when we talk about individuals and trying to be self-sufficient as individuals, I think that's misunderstood because it's not about self-sufficiency so much as it's about interdependency. And that's the root of every culture. That's the root of our modern society. But we've gotten so removed from it because of the way we use money and have our connections rather than having connections with each other. One to one, in terms of "I need this, you have that," we first have to go through money, and our relationship suddenly doesn't become about the other person and meeting their needs together mutually. It just comes about having enough money for ourselves. so that's what I mean when I say self sufficiency is often misunderstood is people lose that 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 understanding that interdependency, that connectivity is the root of true abundance is how do we thrive together rather than survive?
0: Well, definitely. I mean, if you if you took a human into the forest analogy instead of the tree, and the mm-hmm. guy says, well, I'm self-sufficient. I can go out in the forest with my knife and uh, a flint steel and the clothes on my back and live there for as long as I want and provide for myself so I'm self-sufficient.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, no, you're not. The forest is what you're dependent upon because you've made that particular choice, mm-hmm. that you're going to go there. Or your tree analogy, so the tree needs the forest, but the tree needs... Far more than we can see, if you, if you were to look underground at a microscopic level, there's billions of fungi and bacteria that that tree is dependent upon. In fact, if we eliminated all bacteria and fungi from the planet, there'd be no life here within a decade. Exactly. Probably much quicker than that, actually. There'd mm-hmm. be nothing left. So that even the mighty oak or sequoia or whatever is dependent upon fungal and bacterial activity in that soil. To interact with them, and there's a there's a mutualism there of exudate exchange, right? That totally. that gets that tree the boron or the chromium or whatever it needs that it can't directly extract. And as human beings, the difference for us is we can make a decision: what do we what do we interact with? What do we choose to be dependent on? Do we do, choose to be dependent upon a job, other individuals, a community, a forest as a hunter gatherer? What do we Do we just, instead of just filling a niche, we can choose our niche? Yes. uh, Unfortunately, many of us don't choose our niches very efficiently or very intelligently.
1: Yeah. I'll be a, for example, they'll be like, I'll be a computer programmer. And then you, that's all they have is a skill. It's a great skill. But if they don't have any other skill set to offer when they don't have computers to program or they still need food, that's all they have to do. And they become over-specialize in one area and lose uh, a valuing understanding of the food they need on a day-to-day basis or their home, which they depend upon.
0: Well, if you look at anything that builds well, that creates value, right? So if you're just a programmer, which means I say, I want a system to do this and you can do that, then I can replace you with any other programmer. Mm. You're, you're a cog, right? Yes. I can just buy another cog. And if somebody sells the cog for less, I can buy from them. <laughs> if you are a developer that actually knows how to create value in your program, and it actually comes up with your own concepts and brings unique value, Mm -hmm. then you're not really replaceable. And if you look at nature, everything that interacts usually creates some kind of a value. So that little fungi that interacts with that exudate um, and then extends its hyphae, and then that tree's roots actually, you know, basically it uses the hyphae network as its own root system. Mm -hmm. The fungus has created value for the tree. Yes. And the trees create a value for the fungus. <laughs> and, and and that's how if we're going to stop being a virus, we have to understand that component instead of just extracting, we have to actually create. Exactly. It's cool, man. Um, the Next question I have for you, we're kind of bouncing on this right now. What is, you know, in your view, though, what's the solution? What how the hell do we escape from this mess? Because We can talk all these nice-sounding words all we want, but in the end, (laughs) we're the hell of a mess. I I mean, and and I don't think you have to get real off into the political connotations of environmentalism to see the mess. All you have to do is look at crop yields, um, soil erosion, uh, where people are going hungry in the world, resource depletion. You can just see it everywhere, and, you know, it doesn't have to be in this, like, Disagreed upon computer model of something, you could just look and go, okay, there's a problem right there. We can see it. We can look at it. How do we how do we get out of that? Because it's like a trap.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think that's really important to bring that up, um, especially some of those issues, because I feel like people want to be really educated about what the problems are. But um, as, as someone, uh, actually, I think it was Jeff Lawton who, who said this. He says paralysis by analysis can often overwhelm us. And we go, well, the oceans are acidifying. What am I going to do about that? You try to educate educated about it and try to do something. But it's a huge, huge issue. And then at the end of the day, you don't feel like you've done that much. And then they'll hit you home and be like, overpopulation. And you go, well, what do I do with overpopulation? Well, maybe I have, make sure I don't have enough, you know so many kids, maybe this or that. Maybe I help with birth, con- you know, having uh, conception, um techniques for, for, for lowering population rates or and then as soon as you think you've got that figured out someone will well air pollution and they'll just they'll keep there's so many issues going on. And it's really important to actually focus on the causes of these problems and not just the symptoms. Now this is a really important thing that I usually drive home in my permaculture course because it's like when you have a headache. And you have a headache and your body's telling you something and it's telling you by secreting a neurochemical that actually is is delivering you some pain. So rather than dealing with the cause of the problem, people go, I'm going to deal with the symptom. I'm going to deal with this neurochemical and I'm going to pop, you know, this this other chemical which will counteract it. So now I don't feel the pain and they think, oh, my headache is gone. And I think we approach the same understanding with, with the world's problems. And we go, well, you know, there's oil. Uh, sorry, there's there's air pollution. Well, I'll just get a more efficient car then that does less. Or, you know what? I need to have you know energy's running out. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna use biofuels instead of, of of a regular oil. And I feel like those are no different than popping a pill, where you're dealing with the symptoms of a much larger problem. And that's how we relate to our larger landscape and each other. And and really, when you you're when talking about that. That's an educational problem. And what I find really empowering about that is that's something we can change. How we interact with our world and how to interact with each other is an education issue. And and right now it's a problem. We're not educated how to deal with our larger landscape and how to interact with each other. And that's where where, where I have my most amount of passion and why I'm an educator today, is I go, oh, okay, we can we can teach people. We can teach people these things. The problem is the solution. That's a big saying that we have in permaculture, and Bill Mollison uses it with the case of snails. He says, do you have a snail problem, or do you have a duck solution? (laughs) So how do we use it as a resource? And I think we look at our education system, and I think there's a definite solution there to the educational problem, and that's just switching up how, how we educate people. And that is ultimately what a permaculture design course is. People walk out of that course able to connect with their larger world and it's a very, very empowering and on the ground practical course in that regard. How do we get that into our education system? That to me is where I find the most meaning and I have a lot of hope and I think there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot to do.
0: I think it's, it, it's also, so if I look at, let's say, the problem of soil erosion mm-hmm. and I say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure on my three acre property there's no soil erosion. Mm. On the surface, that's, that's pretty weak to the problem, because I promise you, with as little soil as here anyway, it eroded due to natural situations a long ago. I am not the one dumping uh, nitrite into the Mississippi River and creating a dead zone. It's, yeah. and, and me doing that won't do anything to stop that at all. So you'd say, well, then it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But if in the, the, the halting of that erosion... And I begin a building process. And all of a sudden, somebody drives down my road, and there's a few houses with some grass that are irrigated and you know, fertilized and, and running turf or whatever. But basically, everything's pretty sparse out here. And then someone drives by and sees this place, and it's just blowing up with food and animals. Mm. It, catches you, it catches your eye. And, and I think people do think, I wish I could do that. Mm-hmm. And if you take the educational process with that and say, well, yes, you can and we're educating and being examples at the same time, then people say, well, I want to do that too. And then when a 1,000 people stop soil erosion, it starts to matter. And then when they start saying to their industrial food uh, producer, hey, we want you to do it too, and they go, you can't. They go, well, I did it in my backyard, so I'm sure with all your trillions of dollars you guys can figure it out (laughs) and start demanding food that's produced this way. All of a sudden it does have a massive impact. Massive but it's because people see it. So like what turned me on to permaculture was two things. When I first heard about it, I'm like, this is some hippie freaking voodoo crap. I don't want I'm not i am not going to roll around in mud and I saw this video of these people rolling around. Like, this is dumb. I and then I saw this video of gristled old Bill Mollison and he was talking about how He had worked in the logging industry, and nobody ever that that worked there ever actually owned a house, even though they were cutting down all these trees. And he kind of tweaks out and goes and lives in the forest for like five years. And he said, at the end of that time, I determined I could either come back and fight the bastards, or I could just stay in the woods. And I decided to come back and fight the bastards. And I went, that doesn't sound like a bunch of hippie crap. (laughs) So there was like this old warrior. And right about the same time, I saw Greening the Desert, the first Greening the Desert. Yes. And I looked at that, and I went, well, if you can do that there, then Northeast Texas shouldn't be that tough. No. So it was this this seeing of there is this warrior mentality, like this is something we're fighting for, and on top of it seeing the practical result. Here's a place where when they saw a mushroom, they had to call somebody on the phone and go, what the heck is this? Because no one there had ever seen one before. And you have fig trees where they have people from the university coming down going – what, what did you do? Cause this shouldn't work in six months here. And then realizing, well, if that works and it's, it's worth fighting for, then it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that is why I'm such a believer in permaculture. If it was just a bunch of people sitting around beating on a drum, I'd, I'd have better <laughs> my time.
1: Yes. Seeing <laughs> seeing is definitely believing. And there is so much case study evidence of this from the urban level, with the very small, like I said, balconies and backyards, to um, the broad acres, whether it's green the desert or the story that happened in the lowest plateau in China, where they... Changed an area the size of Belgium with $500 million into this amazingly beautiful system that harvested all the water that fell on it, and now the farmers are making three times the amount of income on it. So it w- there's a lot of hope, and it's a very exciting because you can see that it's applicable to not only everyday people, but to these big problems where we go, well, how do we, you know, re- repair one of the most degraded landscapes in the face of earth, which is what a lot of environmentalists would actually classify the lowest plateau as is, you know, it's, it can be done and it can be done on any scale.
0: It's almost like we have to take a piece of land and make it worthless before we're willing to do what it takes to make it valuable. Mm, people don't right? like value if there's any valuable value to it at all the way that it is. We won't make the investment, but if we completely destroy it, then we're like, huh, <laughs> yeah, we can, we can take a risk on this one and see if we can fix it or something. I mean, if you think of Los Plateaux, right, back thousands of years ago, it was as rich and lush and beautiful as it's becoming again, and it was agricultural practices that screwed it up. Yeah. And then it was like, for years, like, we can't do anything because these farmers have to make a living and they have to use what's left. And when it finally got to the point where, you know, everybody around, even the farmers went, yeah, we're all going to die. <laughs> Then it was like, well, let's see if we can fix it. And it was, you know, I think it was John DeLue that had a, a lot of, of involvement with that. And it yes. was amazing. I mean, if you watch the the video on that, I can't remember what it's called. It's like, hoping a changing climate might that, be it. That's it, yeah. You see it change. And you're like, and like you said, it was like the area is the size of Belgium. <laughs> yeah. and, and so 500 million, that seems like a lot of money, but we got a government. That's, you know, running trillion-dollar deficits. Yes. It's a rounding error. (laughs) It is. It's a rounding error in the national budget.
1: It is. (laughs) Oh yes. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, on another note, though, the United States, you know, it is getting traction uh, politically on a larger scale. Like the University of Massachusetts um, actually won um, an award uh, where they get their project funded. And I think I'm not sure exactly the specifics of how it works, but I, as far as I know, every state uh, university submits a project idea to the White House, and then they turn around and they fund just one of them, the one they select. And the University of Massachusetts actually won the award by um, submitting a, a product proposal for a permaculture garden to feed the cafeteria for the university. Um, so it, it's very interesting when you look at actually the two governments and what they're doing. <laughs> one's fixing this massive area with you know a surprisingly little amount of money, and the other one's got a, a university garden. But at least something is happening on that larger front where it's getting recognized that it's not a thing that people are getting in a circle and beating a drum, but actually that it's you know very rooted in in growing some food and very basic uh, understanding of how do we repair landscapes how do we encourage them to be productive and abundant
0: yeah definitely and so you know we talk about government funding things, and i 'm not necessarily the biggest fan of that in the first place i 'm like, if I can redirect the money that they 're spending to something more productive than what they generally spend it on fine, but in general, I do look to individuals to to enact solutions, mm-hmm. but a lot of this stuff does cost money, and there 's different ways you can do it. you know you can go into the ag route and owe your soul to the bank and and try to make a living as a farmer, and there's a lot of little innovative ways. You guys are exploring a crowdfunding option for some of the work you're doing. Can you talk about crowdfunding what it is and how it works?
1: Yeah, most certainly. So we, we started by writing a grant to the United Nations, and it took a lot of time. It was a long process, and we got $50,000, which was great. But at the end of the day, we went, you well, know, social permaculture-wise, you know, is that a really a great community connection in terms of drawing, you know, this, the people, the individuals together. To value this, this center. And we went, well, maybe not. Um, we, we now get on the map and we can sure do some infrastructure, but we gotta start doing the social front. And that involves, you know, all the Facebook and the Twitter and all these other things. And we'd rather invest our, our energy into building up this landscape and teaching people rather than putting all this energy into social media and advertising. Um, we'd rather just do good work and have that speak for us. Uh, but, but to get more money, we decided, okay, what is this crowdfunding model? Because we had heard of it. Um, and I did some research into it, and I became the crowdfunding manager, I guess you could say, for our project. And I did some research and found that there was two really big companies, um, Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, and we actually chose Kickstarter because of its um, apparently increased uh, traffic and popularity. And we set a goal of of $50,000. Now, when I say $50,000, we go, that's a lot of money. And why we chose $50,000 was to look at, we looked at other permaculture projects that were on Kickstarter and there was a few on there already that had shot for about $70,000 and and they had made it. So we went, okay, it's achievable. It's been done before. The other reason we chose $50,000 was because we had submitted in our original grant to United Nations um, a proposal for $150,000 to get the site kicking for three years, and uh, we were late in submission er, in submitting the application, and they had already awarded uh, money elsewhere. But they said, you know, we still have fifty thousand dollars to award you guys. So we were already starting with a plan that was around one hundred and fifty, and only starting with fifty. So we went, okay, let's shoot for another fifty, so we can reach that goal and roll with our plan that we have here for the next three years. So um, we went with that, and we went for a month. We thought, okay, let's buckle down, let's, let's go hard at this, let's do all the social media stuff that goes with crowdfunding, and ask individuals to help support us. So, in, in, in this regard, I haven't explained this yet, but crowdfunding is like a grassroots movement. You know, it's kind of like all of the tree leaves supporting the tree. Doing a grant is like going to the trunk. It's like going to the trunk and asking it for, for energy instead of going to the leaves and asking it for energy. And it's, it's, it's a very different model of how to do funding. So with crowdfunding, you create a video. And with these Indiegogo's and Kickstarter sites, you, you create a story and you offer rewards or perks, as they call them, for people to donate. So maybe someone says, oh, here's $20. We say, oh, great. Well, here's a thank you card. And someone else says, "Well, here's forty dollars." Well, here's a video tour of our property, and we'll send you a new video tour every year to show you what you helped create. And then you keep going this way up to whatever your highest denomination is. And we actually did some denominations of uh, five thousand dollars, and we had two backers who, who you know, wealthy businessmen who, who really believed in our cause, who actually donated five thousand dollars apiece, uh, and that very much, very much helped the cause. So, we actually didn't make our goal. Now, here's the thing about Kickstarter. For those people out there who are are looking to do a a crowdfunding campaign, be aware of the pros and cons of each of these platforms. Kickstarter is an all or nothing campaign, which means if you get the money, you reach your goal, you get it, they take a a, a cut for their services and for the transactions. Uh, But if you don't reach your goal, all of the money is returned back to the donors. So this was the thing where we were just running, and it was so amazing to do this this project. But we didn't actually reach our goal. We actually got just shy of it. We twenty two thousand not just shy, just shy of half of it, twenty two thousand dollars out of the fifty thousand. But the publicity we got from it and the reaction we got from the community was invaluable. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I don't look back or have any regrets in that regard, especially because some of those donors actually came through after the point. We actually claimed about 60% of that money, even though it was returned back to the donors. They came back to us and said, we still want you to have it. So um, there's one thing to know about crowdfunding is, know your platforms and their pros and cons. So for people who want to think about what's the alternative, Indiegogo is the other big one, um, and they have two different weights. They have the all or nothing rate, but they also have a flexible one where they take a higher percentage in exchange for you being allowed to keep whatever money you raise.
0: Yeah, and that's actually, we're running our own uh, crowdfunding program right now for a a web-based platform we're developing, and we're using Indiegogo for that reason and for another key reason. So one of the things you can do with crowdfunding is instead of just giving perks, you can actually pre-sell. So we're doing a site with a membership, and one of the things we wanted to do for big donors, and we've had six step up and do 1000 bucks, is offer people that would do that a lifetime membership. Yes. And Kickstarter's like, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can. I just can't do it with you, so somebody else can get a piece of my money. <laughs> uh, now, I do think Kickstarter has a broader reach. There, yeah. there, it's there definitely is. the case. But we, we found that for some things, Indiegogo does work better, not just for the flexible funding, but for more flexibility whatsoever. I mean, to be able to to do things kind of your own way. And pretty much... Indiegogo will let you do anything you yeah. can do a, a fund to raise money to get a dog placed if you want to or what have you, it yeah. may not work but you could try
1: <laughs> yeah and you know what, there's a lot of other ones out there too I can't remember because I started the research so long ago but there's a huge host of, of these crowdfunding platforms and for someone who's interested in, in, in looking into starting one it's worth the, the while just to look into what are some of the different ones, what are their pros and cons and pick the one that's best Um, for what you need, and i got to say, I really admire your guys' one. It looks so cool. In terms of talking about connections, you're talking about connecting generations, and I feel like that's something that that we need to also come back to, not just connecting with landscape, not just connecting with our immediate community, but how do we connect with our heritage? How do we connect with the people who came before us, and what they knew as well? And, And when we were talking about education earlier, that ties in here a lot because our education system right now, in terms of what I do not like about it, is we isolate kids by age, and we also like the subjects from each other as well, and we ring the bells, and these kids go through school not being able to interact with people beyond a year, usually, in their age group. They're usually uncomfortable interacting with those people outside of that. And then they don't understand how all these subject areas connect to each other. How do you teach social studies without music? How do you teach social studies without teaching, you know, food? Is not yeah. food and culture so intertwined? And yet, do you think we're really learning, you know, when I learned how to do chocolate chip cookies and banana bread in my, in a home ec class? Do you think you're really learning much about your culture's history? I, no. I, no, really That's not. That's a great
0: point, though, man, because like, so if you travel to, to, to Italy, mm. right? What is one of the first things you're going to do when you get there?
1: (laughs) Get some food. Go visit a wine.
0: (laughs) And and you're not going to go to the place that looks like the Sapporo at the airport here, right? You're going to go to an authentic place that's serving authentic food that's part of that culture because you know full well to really experience that culture, you have to eat their food, right? Because you really can't know a culture without knowing it's food. It's impossible because... Family meals, the 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 biggest dialogues, the biggest everything from, you know, what happened at school today to the biggest business deals in in the world uh, is conducted around a table. Yes. So y- y- you bring up a really great point. We've when I think back now to like you know studying different uh, parts of the world in school, a little bitty thing might you know mention that this one group might eat bugs or something, but there was never an in depth look at their their food. No, which is the culture. Or for an example, like my I I make beer and my son, when he was in second grade, told the teacher when she said, what would you do last night? He said, I hope my dad make beer. Right. And so we went to parent teacher night and she was concerned. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't drink it. And by the way, making beer with me, he's learned chemistry. uh, He's learned history and he's learned algebra. Yeah, he's in second grade. Have you taught him chemistry, history, and algebra yet?
1: Ratios and
0: she said no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a great point. How can you understand a culture without understanding their food?
1: Yes, and so I think the education model is, is so broken for this matter, where you know it's about all these connections that happen between the subjects, sec- the subjects that really gives them their meaning, and yet we break them up into isolation and ring bells, and then they just go to each subject and they have no understanding. You know of really what're what they 're what they're learning and why in fact it 's more like just a hurdle to jump over you 've got to graduate you know grade twelve if you want to go get the next level of education, so you can get a good job and it 's just like what is a good job by the way i don 't agree to that but, but just by pay, <laughs> what we value and, yeah. and so people are really being trained in the education system right now not to make a life but to make a living. And I, I feel like that that is a huge weakness of our education system and and, and revaluing as I, I went on a tangent here. I was saying that I really, really admire your, your Indiegogo campaign and what you're trying to do there with catching people with their heritage is we need to not only recognize the education system right now isn't really meeting our needs for preparing tomorrow, but recognize how people used to be. And that was usually your, your grandparents had a really significant role in educating your kids and passing on that knowledge and understanding. And there are still cultures in the world that they still very much value this, where even they'll even have three generations in one home. But these days, you put kids into daycare and school and old people into old folks' homes. And it really is a con- con- connection right there that can be made. Where kids-
0: All I can think of is the problem is the solution. When <laughs> yeah. you say that <laughs> exactly, put them together instead of separating them. That the children would have better care and the old people would have a better sense of purpose, and, and things would be tra- passed out. You know, you mentioned what we're doing with Jen Ford, and and part of what I want to make sure that people understand about that, and part of how this fits with permaculture ethics is. One of the biggest reasons that humanity behaves like a virus is because we're focused so much on now and maybe the end of the week and maybe the end of the month. That's it. And that's for most people that have been trained to make a living versus a life like you. So that's all they can do to stay above water. Mm. And if you actually start to answer questions that you know you're answering for grandchildren that aren't born yet, it is impossible to do that without realizing that your actions today have consequences 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And when you become aware of that and become conscious of that, that's probably more than half of the solution to stopping screwing things up. Yeah. Because you convince yourself what you're doing doesn't matter, right? And the thing I've tried to teach people from the beginning with TSP is what you do does matter. The biggest lie that's been purported to the American people, to the, to the people of the developed world, is what you do is not important. Yes. Right. That you're only this little piece and what you do is not that big a deal. And, and what you do in your own life, in your own backyard and with your own family is more important than what the rest of the world does. Yes. That That's and if you can get people thinking that way, they will take responsibility for themselves and for that of their children. And we're right back to the prime directive.
1: Yes, exactly. Full circle. <laughs>
0: And that's why I like the Prime Directive, right? So not the Star Trek one, the Bill Mollison one. That, <laughs> that if you, you can't find a person that will tell you that's a flawed way to look at life. If, if, they, if they are devoutly of the liberal philosophy, it fits right in with their thinking. But since it's for your children, it's also right in with the people that are devoutly of the conservative political space, and no matter what dichotomy you find, when you sit people down and say, "Look, the only thing that you can do that's really ethical is to be responsible for yourself and responsible for those that you you leave behind." You, you all, if you could find somebody that that goes, "Oh, that's not true," then you're you're back to those those, those psychopaths that are that are only out for themselves, and they're you know thankfully a, a fairly small segment of society.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, interesting, because we study a lot of, you know, um, cultures, like I, I think of the, um, it with the Iroquois, actually, uh, of Canada, they had a, a generation, seven generation rule, where the decisions of the community were based on the impact that have seven generations down the road. And that was an integral part of their culture, and, and how they made decisions. And just as you say, people do their decisions these days, based on the end of the week, or one season's harvest they don't think about the topsoil going because they're just trying to get by with the crop they want to get and some money they want to get by the end of a growing season. So we need to definitely integrate that longevity, that multiple generation rule um, into our culture. And it starts with revaluing and connecting the generation so they can understand the impact of their um, from one generation to the next and how they do things rather than just going and learning from institutions instead of the people who actually have been around for three generations' time and seen how their actions affect their world.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you say seven generations, you're looking at 20 to 30 years of a generation because mm-hmm. it's not just how long you live. There's overlap with each generation. Like you said, it's three generations basically at alive at any one time and maybe the tiny little fringes of the really long-lived at the edge of the fourth that might still be around here and there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But even with that, that's 140 years, right? 140 to 210 years, depending on whether you use 20 or 30.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's This country has barely been here, what, 220-odd, 230-odd years. Mm. So that would mean if we were following that rule ourselves, that when the Declaration of Independence was written... They would have been looking forward to 1976 on the bicentennial. Hmm. And what are we doing today and how will that affect those people then? That's, you almost feel like, well, if the Native Americans could figure that out, what the hell's wrong with us? Like you almost feel guilt. You should feel almost a little bit of guilt that like we can't think about 10 years from now and these people were thinking seven generations. Yeah. That's really really powerful when you think about it that way. Very. So, in your work, you've decided to go to this place called Barbados, right? Yes. Not a bad place to be. I guess if you're going to you're going to work for yourself and run your own show, then going to Barbados is not a bad bad call. <laughs> um, but why Barbados? What what made you decide to do a PRI there? I mean, was it just it because you spent so much time in the the tropics, the subtropics that I mean, I am envious of anybody that can grow citrus fruit, I'll be honest. Uh, or was it, is there a unique opportunity there? What what led you there? Well, like I said before
1: with uh, my business partner, Lorraine Charles, she's actually the the, the manager's side of it. She's, this has been her dream, baby, and she's really made it happen where she finished her internship with Jeff Lawton and wanted to find a place to set up a research institute. And she'd been to Barbados a few times before, and just fate had aligned. In terms of who she met at the right time and the ball got rolling to get one set up here. Um, and once that started, and I was actually, um, over two, two years ago. So this has been in the making now is an idea for a long time. And then I was brought on, um, a year and about a half ago, um, onto the project. And so there was already a, you know, a set, a location which we were eyeballing and the grant form was already started for trying to get funding. Um, so there was a bit of fate there and the right aligning in terms of Lorraine having been here before and getting in in touch with the right people. But the other reason why Barbados was chosen was because of its economic situation where it is a very small island, but it's extremely dense. So um, they just are right now importing over 50 percent of their food. Um, and there 's a strong negativity towards working in the soil, and there 's a you know uh, colonial history here in slavery so there 's an association between tilling and working under the hot sun and in the soil as this negative thing that people want to get away from um, so in a way it, it's it 's a very interesting social situation, but it 's the exact perfect time in terms of going what do people need and there's there 's a resurgence here for organic for food that you know will will Actually, be healthy, and people can grow locally rather than importing. So, in that way, Barbados seemed like the perfect place. Um, economically, Barbados is also quite interesting uh, because you know it has a very high um, education rate in terms of uh, the number of people who actually graduate. So, the government has valued education uh, for a long time. So, there's a lot of there's a base population there that um, are looking for answers or, or have a high level of education. So when we start offering a permaculture design course, it could be a really nice step up for, say, a high school student who's looking for what's the next step. Or you're looking at someone who's already gotten into um, university and they're going, wow, that was really unfulfilling. I went into agriculture or I went into whatever field and went, you know, that doesn't really, really meet my needs. I'm spending so much of my food, my, 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 income on food and why so there was just the right time in, in in just the right time for us to kind of set down a research institute here to demonstrate not only how to grow food on the small the medium and the large scale but also to start up this education center um so we can start teaching people how to grow their own food and returning that that that, that revaluing
0: back to them very cool man so you also stated that, in your notes that I have here, that Barbados was like Easter Island.
1: Mm, mm. What's up
0: with that? Because that's, that's that's purely out of left field for me. There's <laughs> heads there or something? I don't know about.
1: No, there's, there's no 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 Easter Island heads here. When we talk about you know cultures and we talk about soil use and we're talking about government, we're talking about we're going to tie things together here. When we look at you know models of, of cultures that have worked that have been around for a while. It's very interesting to study the ones that have and the ones that haven't. You look at the Mayans and and you know they came and went. What what went wrong? And there's all this hypotheses of what they went wrong. But we do know they were using land fairly intensively around their cities and they deforested massed areas. Um, we look at the Romans and we look at how they were this huge shaping force on the planet. And yet, just as they went in with a bang, you know big bang, they went out with a big bang and they collapsed. And you could once again hypothesize. All these different causes, but their ultimate you know, relationship with with their landscapes, it, it was not sustainable. And I think we're on that same track in our in our model of relating to land, where we really have an extraction-based model. Um, and Easter Island is an interesting example for Barbados because it was also a small island, and it had a very successful culture, and then the culture just disappeared. So with Barbados. This land used to be heavily forested. And then with with colonial times, sugar cane industry came in and so much of the island was cleared. And we're still seeing the effects of that today with areas having, you know, low top amount of topsoil and with the reforesting of the island, but When you look at how many people are on this island, I feel like it's quite interesting if you compared it to Easter Island and how many people were there and they deforested their, their landscape, uh, and their ecosystem and their ecosystem collapsed and then, well, what do you know? There's no more Easter Islanders. I wonder why. (laughs) So I think there's an interesting correlation between Barbados and between Easter Island because if economically, you know, the world went a downturn and say oil went through the roof, Barbados would be in a very similar situation to what the Easter Islanders were in, where there would be too many people on too small a land with very depleted resources because of how we've managed land. So that's that interesting connection.
0: I got you. I got you. It makes me, that actually makes me think a lot of Cuba. Mm. Cuba had their own little peak oil crisis, and it wasn't that peak oil was real. It was just real for them. You know, it was that they didn't have access to the money from the Soviet Union anymore. So, and no, and there were people like us that said, we won't deal with you. Um, and they had to deal with that exact same thing. They had to rapidly support their own population and they had to give up, you know, chemical farming of sugar cane. Yes. It's, uh, it, it's an interesting, interesting point. So the other, but the cool thing about Barbados is it's not a bad place to live. So it's not a bad place to visit either. Mm. So if someone were to come visit you guys down there, what opportunities do you have? Well, right
1: now we actually run two different types of permaculture design courses. Um, We offer an intensive course, a 10-day one. Uh, Next one, I believe, is on March uh, 6th. And um, that is like the intensive, here's the 72 hours, let's get you trained up as a designer, and let's also offer you a community that you learn within. So when I, what I've noticed in, in visiting various teachers and teaching in different formats is there's pros and cons to each. The 10-day course is nice because it's like going through Nam together or something, where the people who come out of it all like, are very close. Like, I could go to the people that I did my intensive course with and ask them for a place to stay and a few hundred bucks, and there would be no questions just because we have that connection, and we really bonded as a community together in that course. So that's the first way we offer uh, the permaculture design course. The other way we offer it is as a weekend course. So th- this is obviously was gearing towards, um, the local people when I was thinking, we were thinking, you know what, they can't take time off work because they need that money or they don't have that vacation time. So how do we still deliver the course to them? Well, we offer it as a weekend course over a series of weekends. Usually it's, it's always around two months. So, um, we have a few weekends off to have as breaks. And we're actually just finishing our very first one um, this December 6th and 7th. And we're pumping out our first class of permaculture designers here in Barbados. So that is the first way that I would invite people to come on down to Barbados and learn in, a as you're saying, a very beautiful place. Um, but the other ways that we try to get people out here is is for volunteering. So on our our website, uh, cpribarbados.com, we have a volunteer page, uh, and for people to plug in their volunteer info, and then we send them a package, letting them know what is it like to come down here, what can they expect, you know, what, what kind of amenities will they have, and then they book a time with us and they come on down for. We usually try to stay between two or three weeks to start with, but people sometimes really want to come down for you know months, or we've even had someone offered to come down for 3 years the whole project um, which is great for getting volunteer staff which we're also open to is people to actually take over areas of this project based on their skill set say as like a cook or a gardener or if they have a lot of experience working in nurseries it's a great way to you know add to your permaculture career or learn a bunch and also share it with the students who are coming to the site so there's two volunteer, big opportunities there for volunteers to either just come as a as a woofer, as I explained to you, a willing worker on an organic farm, where they would come and stay for a few weeks, or if they're interested in actually coming down as a long-term volunteer, that can be explored.
0: Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. Um, you want to tell people uh, how to get to your website as well, and as we wrap up here. Sure. So
1: the website address is www.cpri. Uh, Barbados.com, that stands for the Caribbean Permaculture Research Institute, Barbados. Um, we also have a Facebook page which we throw up free resources and events on and updates and uh, we find the community often likes to gather on Facebook because that's just what people like to use. Uh, we also have a Twitter account but we don't use it very much because we're not all that tech savvy and rather be in the field than managing tweets. <laughs>
0: Very cool, man. Well, again, I appreciate you being with us today, and uh, thanks for all the work you do and for spending time with us today at the Survival Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, listeners, and thank you very much, Jack.
0: And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spears, along with Kent and Zerbin, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these
1: days, you know it's
0: on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat.